Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe Ventilation System exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe Ventilation System. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Let's go back to my family room floor in the suburbs of Southern Ontario. It's a weekday in the mid-80s, 4.26 p.m. My sister and I have just returned home from school. The first half hour of Oprah is coming to a close. It's time to switch the channel. This wasn't a choice. It just was. Ma and Pa pulling up in a wagon... Ma primly tucking a wayward strand of hair in her bonnet. Pa's infectious laugh. And the girls, Laura, Mary, and little Carrie, joyfully running down a grassy hill. Oops, down goes Carrie. I believe I've seen every Little House episode at least once. There are 204 in total. In fact, I can still ID any episode based on the first five seconds. And if this sounds impressive, or alarming. Rest assured, I'm not the only one. I think it's just the reality of a 1980s childhood when there were limited options and you watched what you were given. And a lot of us were given Little House. Like, a lot. Let me put it in context for you. Remember the Game of Thrones finale? The one that had more viewers than the finale of The Sopranos, or Sex in the City, or actually anything else on HBO ever. 13 million people tuned in to watch that Game of Thrones finale. Well, as they might say on the prairie, hold my tin cup, Daenerys. On any given Monday night from 1974 to 1983, Little House on the Prairie averaged 16 million viewers. Little House was a huge hit, but lots of shows were in the 70s. There was a lot of things on TV, actually, in the 1970s. 
that were really huge that aren't in reruns or out on DVD and people are not watching now. But Little House in the Prairie is a what in the heck? Little House went into reruns while it was still on in prime time. The show ended in 1983, but it's never actually gone off the air. So you can add millions and millions of viewers to those original numbers we just told you about. The show stayed on the air for 50 years and is actually better known now than it was when it was originally on NBC. We're talking a half century of television. It's on Hallmark. It's on VHS. It's on DVD. It's on Amazon Prime. It's on Peacock. And an entire new generation of kids discovered it during COVID. Little House in the Prairie, the videos on the phone that you watched on the way here. Oh, <laughs> a little bit. In March of 2020, too, we saw the number of Google searches for Little House on the Prairie double from the month before. Some of you might have it on another screen right this second. I literally wake up in the middle of the night and go, somebody somewhere is watching Little House on the Prairie right now. It's literally because it's in every country on Earth. It's been dubbed into every language. There's DVDs in every language. It's bananas. There's a lot of reasons Little House never quits. But without question, one of the biggest is Michael Landon, the show's producer, writer, director, and most importantly, the star, better known to many as Charles Ingalls, Laura's Pa. Sorry about what, Edmund? I guess I just couldn't find the words to say it was in my heart, Edmund. For better or worse, Michael Landon made the show all his own. This is a magnetic individual. He glowed. You know, he just, he had it. In the books, Pa was charming and steadfast, and Laura was the star. In the television show, Michael Landon had lovely hair and was always crying. He had a well-oiled bare chest. And as I got a bit older, I enjoyed how nice he looked in tight pants and suspenders. He was the star. Laura was our adoring proxy. If you're a person devoted to Little House book series, the ones written by the real-life Laura Ingalls Wilder, the TV version might not always make sense. The stories don't always match up with what's in the books. And at times, they're downright strange. But Michael Lannan had a vision for the show, and it was a vision he believed would stand the test of time. He said, you know, everyone's going to be watching these shows long after we're all gone. He said, long after I'm dead. It was like this prophetic thing. And everyone he said it to it, <laughs> yeah, right, oh, man. And like, didn't believe him. And here we all are. We didn't get it. Michael got it. But the motivation to create these two versions of Little House was essentially the same. If the books were the result of Laura wanting to memorialize her father's stories... The television show is, in many ways, the result of Michael Landon using Laura's writing to tap into his own traumatic childhood. Still, at the end of the day, Michael Landon made Laura's Prairie all his own. And we all liked it there, even if it was a very strange place to be sometimes. In some ways, the TV show feels like a Venn diagram of Laura Ingalls Wilder, her devotion to her pa, her daughter Rose's vision, and then Michael Landon's brain. And the TV series exists at the center of all this. And that's where 20 million people spent an hour each week and then an hour after school every day for nearly five decades. Michael Landon was able to tap into some essential Little House truths. In ways, 
that are sometimes hard to believe and were sometimes just as problematic as the books. This week, instead of going through the pages to the prairie, we're going through the screen to sunny Southern California. Come home to a simpler time. Come home to Hollywood in the 70s. I'm Glynis McNichol, and this is Wilder. long time for the little house books to reach Michael Landon. More than three decades went by from the publication of the last book to the premiere of the show in 1974. It's not because people didn't want it. It's because Laura and her daughter Rose wouldn't let anyone have the rights to the books. By the time Laura died in 1957, the little house books were a huge success. At some point, the Canadian Broadcasting Company approached Laura about adapting the books for radio, but she turned the offer down. Neither she nor her daughter Rose wanted to see the books, quote-unquote, distorted by someone else's vision. There were a number of radio adaptations, both small-scale and also Hallmark, in adapting the Little House books. That's Bill Anderson again. He's been researching and writing about Laura since he was a kid and has written many books on her life. But Laura Ingalls Wilder was very, very skeptical and wanted approval of the scripts. And she wasn't altogether happy with the radio versions. Rose Wilder Lane felt the same way when her books, Let the Hurricane Roar and Freeland, were adapted to radio. So I don't think they were fans of media. After Laura's death, Rose continued to spurn offers. But when Rose died in 1968, things changed pretty quickly. Enter Roger Lee McBride. You remember McBride. He's a complicated figure who had a unique relationship with Rose. He referred to himself as her adopted grandson and even called her grandma. Having no children, Rose designated him her heir, and after her death, he acquired all the rights to Little House on the Prairie. He now owned everything. Despite Rose's wishes, McBride entered into discussions with Disney almost immediately after her death. Disney was very interested in adapting the Little House books. However, on the way to a meeting at their offices, fate intervened. In the form of a young girl, naturally. Circa 1971, my sister's at home ill with a cold from school. She's a teenager. And my father goes in to say goodbye to her in the morning and discovers her reading one of the Little House books. And he can't understand why his teenage daughter's rereading a children's book that her mother had read to her when she was a child. That's Trip Friendly. His father is Ed Friendly. And Ed is the first reason Little House landed on television screens. At the time, Ed was a highly regarded television producer best known for creating the program Roan and Martin's Laughing. 
he went back and talked about it with my mother. And my mother said, I've been telling you for years what great books they are and that you should make a TV series based on them. So he borrowed one of my sister's books. He took it on a business trip a couple of days later, stopped at the magazine rack at the airport and bought a Time magazine and hid it inside the Time magazine on the airplane so no one would see he was reading a children's book. And when he landed, he immediately realized what he had in his hands. And so he called his attorney and asked him to find out if the rights were available. And my father invited Roger to come and meet with him, and they spent a weekend together in Los Angeles. That weekend resulted in Friendly obtaining the rights to turn the books into a television show. He thought the books were a national treasure. His goal was to try to bring the magic of those books to the screen. At least that was the plan. This was the mid-'70s, and the concept of setting a wholesome family show on the American frontier did not exactly speak to the times. My father was turned down by virtually every studio and network because at the time, they all told him, Westerns are dead, this material is too soft, it's nice, they're great books, but, but, but. In March 1974, America was at the height of Watergate. Vietnam was still raging. The country was experiencing extreme inflation. There was a lot of sharp, timely social commentary on primetime TV, and a lot of people watching. The most popular show was All in the Family, average viewership 20 million. In fact, the average weekly viewership of the top 10 shows in 1974 was around 16 million. I'm telling you all these numbers just to remind you that even basic television was a common cultural language. When you showed up at work or at school or at the grocery store the next day, everyone knew what you were talking about. You'd all been watching it together. Joe and I often talk about what it was like to grow up with this sort of shared culture. I mean, I try to explain this to Charlie all the time, that he lives in a content utopia where he can just dial up magically any episode of any show ever created and watch it as many times as he wanted. Whereas if we saw a show, especially when we were much younger, we may never see it again. I remember one of my favorite Little House episodes came on and I skipped swim practice because I was like, I've been waiting for this episode for years to see. And the thing, too, is like when we talk about how wholesome Little House was, the Waltons was also on TV in the 70s at the same time. Yeah, in my head, they're the same thing. Even though I grew up in the 80s, and I know that my mom watched both Little House and the Waltons. And to me, it just seemed really cheesy. I wasn't paying enough attention to either of them. Yeah. If I was to differentiate them for listeners and for you, I would say the Waltons was sort of like the Depression. And Little House in the Prairie was like sex appeal Hollywood, Michael Landon with, you know, his muscles and his hair and his smile and clearly had shaved his chest, although I didn't understand that as a kid. Like there was so much sex appeal to Little House in the Prairie. It was like a Western. It was like Hollywood. Hold on. I'm, I'm Googling pictures of Michael Landon. I mean, his shirt, hair is spectacular. Oh, that's some <laughs> nice hair. That's some real nice hair. Oh my gosh. Look at his chest. Yeah. He was always finding reasons to take his shirt off. He was always breaking his ribs somehow so that they had to take his shirt off and wrap him up in like some sort of 
like prairie tensor bandage. He glistens. He, he really he glistens. Oh. Nobody looked like that on the Waltons, let me tell you. All right. Just make me a list of your top 10 episodes. I'll dive into some Michael Landon when I'm alone later this evening. Being a sex symbol was not a new experience for Michael Landon. In the early 70s, Landon was known to the world as Little Joe, the youngest son of the wealthy ranch-owning Cartwright family on the television western Bonanza. At the height of its run, it was the number one rated show in the country, clocking 19 million viewers weekly. Landon who was in his mid-twenties, was a teen idol. Think, Elvis goes west. When Bonanza ended in 1973, Michael Landon was primed for his next project. My father knew Michael because he was very close friends with Lauren Green, who was the patriarch on Bonanza. Here's Trip Friendly again. And so he called Michael and he said, I have a project that I'm very interested in having you direct. So he sent my sister with a script up to Michael's house and a few hours later, he got a call from Michael saying, I not only want to direct, but I want to star as Pa. And so with Michael attached, he went back to NBC with whom he had a very strong relationship. And he presented him with the package with Michael a- a directing and Michael starring. And they agreed. If I had a remembrance book, I would mark down how it was when we left our little house in the big woods to go west to Indian Territory. The two-hour little house pilot aired on March 30th, 1974. Ed Friendly spent his own money to hire Blanche Hanalis to adapt it, and she stuck faithfully to the book Little House on the Prairie. All right, Kansas, here we come. The pilot was a huge hit. It was the highest-rated television movie of the year, NBC immediately ordered the series, and Little House on the Prairie premiered on September 11, 1974, seven weeks after Nixon's resignation and one week after I was born. The series starts with an episode called A Harvest of Friends, and it introduced a very different Ingalls family from the one readers knew from the books. The episode is about how Walnut Grove comes together to help Charles when an injury keeps him from fulfilling a contract that will allow him to save his brand new farm. It's a tearjerker, and it has no correlation whatsoever to any storyline in any of the books. This set the template for what was to come on Little House. Family first. Home is the nicest word there is. Strength and community. I think you're a welcome addition to our community. Thank you. Hard work. Work for you in the morning, work for Hanson in the afternoon. You're biting off a big piece. God. Charles, the Lord's Day is set aside for worship and for rest. Michael Landon's thick-flowing curls. Michael Landon's smile. Michael Landon's shirtless and glistening. Michael Landon crying. Or if not exactly crying in this episode, frequently wobbling his lip. Laura was still there, and Melissa Gilbert was charming and could hold her own in a scene, but there was no doubt who the star of this prairie was. The spotlight had clearly been shifted to Pa and his perfectly lit pecs. This was not the Charles Ingalls of the books. Michael showed himself to be anything but Charles Ingalls. That's actor Dean Butler. He played heartthrob Almanza Wilder on the show. This is a guy who's sitting there with a cigarette in his teeth. He's got his Carrera sunglasses on, his his, uh, denim shirt opened down, halfway down his chest, is sprayed on with the gun jeans, the snakeskin boots, the hair, obviously, with the ash brown dye number two in it. Unlike Pa, 
Michael Landon on the Prairie didn't have the iconic beard Laura writes so lovingly about in the books. NBC was so concerned Little House book fans would be alarmed by the lack of a beard, they felt it necessary to put out a press release explaining its absence. Great pains were put into fitting Michael Landon with a beard, both of natural growth and by makeup artists. But it was decided that he just did not look good with any kind of facial hair. And if Michael Landon did not look good with facial hair, then gosh darn it, he would not have facial hair. He was the star, and the producer, and the writer. It was, in short, Michael Landon's prairie. Millions of people wanted to live there with the Ingalls for at least one hour a week. Everyone loved Pa. Well, almost everyone. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values, premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary in your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe Ventilation System exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe Ventilation System. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. 
That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. As Little House was hitting the airwaves in the fall of 1974, Ed Friendly the person who initially had brought the books to the screen, was increasingly unhappy. Michael Landon was wreaking havoc on Friendly's plan to faithfully adapt the books. Friendly flat out told People Magazine he thought this prairie was too flashy. I've renamed the series How Affluent Is My Prairie. They have everything but a Cadillac. My father decided he and Michael had creative differences, and I think he recognized that Michael as the star of the show would not work if Michael left the show. And I think eventually he decided that he did not want to continue with Michael's vision. He had his own vision. So he left the show, but still you'll see in the credits, it's still an NBC production in association with a friendly production. So he was still very involved without being the producer on the show. So very quickly into season one, Michael Landon was fully completely in charge. While Ed Friendly's departure from the day-to-day signaled a major shift behind the scenes, viewers did not seem too deterred by the fact the show deviated from the books, or by Landon's central role, or by criticism that it was too saccharine. A sweet and low Walton, said People magazine. The show was saccharine, but Landon certainly didn't care. He embraced the simplicity of a family show, as he told Bobby Wygant in an interview right before the first season aired. But anyway, when this came along, it was fresh for me because it was honest and it was simple and very basic. And I I liked the people. I thought the people were nice. And I, I, I kind of thought my family would like to watch that. I got a lot of kids, and it's kind of fun to think you're going to do a show that you would be happy to sit in the living room with the whole family and watch. Landon's idea of family-friendly fare was a combination of adventure, wholesomeness, and hard times. And while the books provided some of this, Landon often went with what he knew. And he had definitely known his own hard times as a child. Born Eugene Horowitz in 1936, Landon claimed to have been ostracized as a child because he was Jewish. He'd also had a painful relationship with his mother, This is what he told People Magazine in 1985 about her. An actor is reading his statement. I always wanted to get away from my family. Mother was a childish person who was always attempting suicide. She would stick her head in the oven, but she always had knee pads on the floor or one window open. In a family like that, you get to thinking, gee, if it's Tuesday, it must be suicide. Landon was famously a bedwetter as a child. I say famously because he talked about it freely. He even made a TV movie about this in 1976 called The Loneliest Runner. While I don't recall any bedwetting episodes in Little House, though presumably there was bedwetting in the 1870s, 
It was these traumas from his own childhood Landon was drawing on when he stepped into the Little House writer's room. And he could do it in a really, an intensely real way. This is Rick Oakey. In the 1970s, he was an NBC exec in charge of a host of iconic programs. The wonderful world of Disney, Chips, Knight Rider, and of course, Little House on the Prairie, where he witnessed Michael Landon's creative process firsthand in the writer's room. I would watch him sometimes. We'd be sitting talking about a plot or about an episode, and he would lean back and he would close his eyes. And, you know, it's hard to sit in a room that's silent when you're supposed to be making a contribution. I would open my mouth to say something, and the other one of the writers in the room would sort of put his hand on my chest and say, wait. Much like real-life Flora, who reworked the hard times of her childhood into magical stories, Landon, in many ways, did the same. And it could go on for minutes where he would just sit there. And when he would sit back up and open his eyes, he'd say, when I was a kid, and he would tell a story out of his own life. And he'd just have you glued because he was a great yarn spinner. And you're asking yourself, how does this relate to what we're working on right now? By the end of his story, he would have tied it back into where the conversation started and he, and use it as a way to bring an authenticity to the stories that made them superhuman. Some of those storylines were loosely connected to actual events in the book, some less so, and some were Landon's attempt to stay current. You know, Mike was always interested in taking issues that were current and putting them in that frame of a period piece that allowed you to explore them without being offensive, kind of the way that MASH was able to explore the Vietnam War because it wasn't Vietnam, it was Korea, but it was Vietnam, and we all knew that's what they were talking about. He proved to audiences that even if the show was sentimental and melodramatic, it could speak to what was happening in their world. And Little House did speak to Vietnam and a host of other contemporary issues. The Civil War soldier who comes back and he has PTSD or shell shock, and he's addicted to morphine. This is the same year when Vietnam veterans were coming home addicted to heroin. Hello, how many people were living that episode? That's Alison Arngrim who played Nellie Olson on the show. So we were doing these episodes where the women are bought the right to own property. We had episodes about alcoholism, about drugs. We had child abuse, we had spousal abuse. We did work all those things out, and a lot of things were covered on 1970s shows like All in the Family or Maud. We were sneaking them in too, but everybody was in bonnets, so it was somehow safe and okay. And of course, Pa and Ma were there to help you, like, deal with it. So Little House could be current and comforting, But this was primetime TV, after all. And just like today, the networks needed to draw eyeballs. And just like today, viewers love drama. Rick Oakey's job was to deliver the studio execs' dramatic demands to Michael Landon. It was always, who's going to have a baby? Is there going to be a wedding? Is there going to be a funeral? Is somebody going to die? What event can you create for us? And I was the unfortunate messenger who had to go over to Michael Landon and go, hate to say this, but what have you got planned for November? Because that's when the, when the ratings uh, sweeps happen, and that's when advertisers make their buys. If you grew up in the heyday of primetime television, you knew the sweeps shows, even if you didn't know what sweeps was. They were often the two-parters. They were unmissable. Think of the time they had to remove the bomb on Grey's Anatomy. That was a sweeps show. Once again, it was Rick Oakey who had to deliver this task to Michael. And he would say, let me think about it. 
And then by the time I drove back to my office in Burbank, my boss would come in and go, what did you say to Michael? He's like, he, he, he's, you know, we're going to do the show where Merlin Olson's wife dies in a fire. And, you know, he would always come through with, you know, without being untrue to the spirit of the books, he was wise enough and smart enough in the ways of broadcasting that he got it and he knew what they needed. And he would always deliver it. What Landon delivered was a mix of sentimentality, Western romance, and cultural relevance, which was ratings gold but could also result in some serious weirdness. Even now, when you're out in the world having conversations with people about Little House, the episodes they remember best always seem to be the strangest. I watch the TV show. I've tried to explain some of the episodes to other tour guides, yeah. and they're like, they did what? Yes. <laughs> the they, TV show really, there's some... When I was, they locked? She locks someone in the ice house? <laughs> That's me and Emily at lunch in DeSmet, South Dakota, with Diane, Cheryl, and Marie, the women who run the Laura Ingalls Wilder Memorial Society. I didn't think they'd be into Michael Landon's antics. But when I brought up the TV show, we immediately launched right into our favorite episodes— which also happened to be the strangest ones. She pushes Nellie down the hill in the wheelchair, even the one that I just watched where Laura, the baby brother, dies and Laura runs away thinking it's her fault. And then Laura climbs up a mountain to be closer to God and she meets an angel. Yes, his name is Jonathan. Jonathan the angel. And I I just, when you start saying it out loud, you're like... But it worked. Not just worked, but made for some classic TV moments that live permanently in the brains of an entire generation of children. So classic that Colin Farrell name-checked Little House at the writer's strike picket line. And I, well, I was an actor. Right. It meant a lot to me. I'm going back to TJ Hooker, Little House on the Prairie. We can go there. When the Little House actors get approached by fans, the fans immediately tell them about their favorite episodes. People always want to talk about a matter of faith and uh, me cutting off my leg. <laughs> The back-to-school one with the cinnamon chicken and the mud fight. Bunny, where I go down the hill in the wheelchair. But I did pretend to be paralyzed and ruin everyone's life. I send the children home early because there was going to be a blizzard. Michael called it, Miss Beetle Kills the Kids Again. I hear about the Lord as my shepherd a lot. It's my favorite, too. That, of course, is Melissa Gilbert. She played Laura on the show. And the Lord is my shepherd is my favorite episode, too. It's also the perfect example of how Michael Landon spun the real stories of the Ingalls family into something utterly wild and memorable and perfectly crafted for primetime TV. The episode The Lord is My Shepherd is based on something that actually happened to the Ingalls, which we've talked about in an earlier episode. When Laura was eight, Ma gave birth to a baby boy, Charles Frederick Ingalls Jr., known to the family as Freddie. Baby Freddie died at nine months. Laura never mentioned him in the books. It was too painful. In the books, uh, the Ingalls don't have a son, and there's no baby who dies. Never spoke of it. And then in the TV show, of course, Michael said, what, that's that's like the greatest episode ever. Of course we're going to do that. The TV episode adheres to these basic facts and then embellishes. Here's what happens in the episode. Ma has a new baby boy. Laura gets jealous of all the attention the new baby boy is getting, and when he gets sick... She refuses to pray for him. When the baby dies, she concludes it's her fault, and she decides to get as close to God as possible, literally. And then, of course, Laura runs away to a mountain. How she found a mountain, 
in Minnesota. I always say she ran across four states to like Colorado or something. I don't know. She finds a mountain, a big mountain at that. And then at the top of the mountain is Ernest Borgdine, who is apparently God. And yet it is genius and it totally works. It is one of the best episodes ever of like anything. It did work. Everyone we spoke to remembered this episode. And they also remembered another one. You know it, even if you don't think you know it. Perhaps no episode has given so many children nightmares than the episode called Sylvia. And of course, the Sylvia episode, or as people um, do refer to it, clown rape. But I'm not laughing because it's funny, but that is the way people refer to it. (laughs) It's a very, very disturbing episode. And they had that clown who was molesting everybody and raping everybody. There was a period in my childhood where every time I saw it, it was the same episode, which is the one that featured a sexual assault. Oh, my God. It was a lot. Here's what happens. Sylvia is about a young girl in Walnut Grove named Sylvia who was sexually assaulted one day on the way home from school in the woods by a man who was wearing a creepy clownish mask. She gets pregnant and her angry father threatens to throw her out. The Ingalls' adopted son, Albert, offers to marry Sylvia so they can run away together. On their way out of town, the clown reappears, but before he can assault Sylvia again, he's shot by Sylvia's dad. But Sylvia, who's climbed up a ladder to get away from him, falls and dies too. Watching Sylvia today is nothing short of bizarre, and like most shows 50 years old, deeply problematic but also maybe weirdly a bit ahead of its time? Little House producer Rick Oakey told me Michael Landon, who wrote and directed the episode, was simply trying to speak to the issues of the day. And I remember when he called me aside and he said, I want to do a show where one of the girls in town gets raped. And it was really controversial and the network you know, had a hard time, but he dug his heels in and said, nope, we're doing this show. I'm going to write it myself. I'll direct it myself. It'll be well done. Don't worry. And it was. What was the response to that show? Mixed. Mixed. Reviews are still mixed. On the one hand, Sylvia provided a narrative for an issue not often talked about on mainstream television. On the other hand, the ridiculous framing around it makes it a joke among fans. To understand how this lands now, I told Joe to watch Sylvia. Oh, I watched Sylvia. That is some messed up shit that happens in Sylvia. And you and Emily both prepared me that this was the quote-unquote clown rape episode. But I still think that there was a part of me that didn't believe you, that didn't really think that that was a thing that was going to exist in the Little House on the Prairie TV show. And I have to say, I found the episode problematic in so many different ways, starting with the boys from the town, the like teenage boys, who go and spy on Sylvia while she's getting dressed and hoping to see her in her bra and underwear. And in the background, the music that's playing is like this happy, circusy kind of music that makes it all seem <laughs> like a farce when these boys are invading Sylvia's privacy and then this terrible sexual assault happens to her later. And then from there, it just got more bizarre and more problematic and completely went off the rails. Yeah. I mean, 
so much of it is so dated, inevitably. It's like a 50-year-old episode, and it's so weird. Like, the clown aspect of it is so yeah, weird, or the no. mime. A clown, a um, mime. I mean, I think mime is worse than clown, to be honest. Yeah, but I think— and, to be clear, this is not a defense of Sylvia. But I think sometimes if you think of Sylvia, like that episode aired in like 1980, I think. And I feel like can be viewed from our vantage point as a sort of early version of an ABC after school special. Mm. Like you remember the ones we grew oh, yeah. up on. And I think it had the ability to give children experiencing, you know, sexual trauma or abuse some sort of language or something to point to and say, this is what's happening to me, you know? And I think if we think about it in that context, it becomes slightly <laughs> less weird. Although, again, the mime slash clown in the woods is just, it's its like the stuff of horror movies before they turned into, you know, the scream horror movie. I hear you that in this episode, in the Sylvia episode, it tackled sexual assault and rape. Sylvia gets pregnant in the episode in a place where families could talk about it afterwards, right? Families could watch together and then maybe give language to something that they didn't know how to talk about before, much like the very special episodes of the sitcoms that came a few years later in the 80s. And there was the Mr. Belvedere episode where Wesley's classmate had AIDS. There was the different strokes where the bicycle shop owner tries to molest Arnold and his friend Dudley. Do you remember oh, that one? I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah, there was also that Punky Brewster episode. There was a bunch of weird Punky Brewster episodes like that really stick out in your head. The Challenger episode. I think she was also... Where the space shuttle explodes. The space sh- the space shuttle actually actually explodes on Punky Brewster. Yeah. So I think, like, Sylvia is before all of this. So in the 80s, by the time we were watching all these shows in primetime, this felt much less strange. But when Sylvia aired on a family show in primetime, and this was the storyline, I just feel like probably some of the weirdness of the plotting fell away. And it was maybe helpful and also probably, like, a lot of people were you know, couldn't take their eyes off of it. And then when we encountered it after school, like, what a strange episode to come home to after school with your cookies and milk. And you're like, oh, well, there's a clown in the woods attacking this girl. So bizarre. It's a disturbing, bizarro, strange <laughs> episode is what it is. But And also Michael Landon knew what he was doing. Like, both things are true at the same time. It's so weird it's also relevant, and also it's 43 years ago, and we're still talking about it. So I clearly, the man knew something. In the same way Sylvia tackled what in hindsight feels like a progressive subject for primetime television in 1980, and also depicted regressive attitudes around sex, Little House of TV series could occupy both extremes too. It could be incredibly open-minded, and at the same time outdated, and problematic. That's after the break. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. 
In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. GameBridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at GameBridge.io. Please visit GameBridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Tired of restless nights? Meet Lisa, the sleep expert. Here at Lisa, we know that good sleep is essential for mental, physical, and emotional health. That's why their mattresses are made for exceptional comfort and support, catering to every sleep need. Check out Lisa's Sapira Hybrid Mattress, named best hybrid mattress five years running. Sleep hot? The Chill Collection is built with cool-to-the-touch top fabric and layers of high-density comfort foams, all intended to remove excess body heat while maximizing comfort. With Lisa, getting a new mattress has never been easier. Delivery is free, and you have 100 nights to try out your mattress in the comfort of your home. Don't spend another night dreaming of better sleep. For a limited time, save up to $700 off select mattresses plus two free pillows. Go to lisa.com forward slash iHeart for an additional $50 off mattresses and select goods. That's l-e-e-s-a.com forward slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe Ventilation System exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe Ventilation System. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. The Little House on the Prairie television show, for all its sentimentality and outdated tropes, still resonates with fans today. Similar to what we've said about the Little House books, certain episodes seem to pop back up from time to time and are newly relevant. In the spring of 2020, at the height of the pandemic, a lot of people turned to an episode called Quarantine. This is the one where Mr. Edwards' daughter, played by none other than Kyle Richards of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills fame, gets sick with a mysterious virus, and she and Laura have to quarantine. And then, in the wake of George Floyd's murder and the Black Lives Matter protests, another episode went viral. That summer of 2020, when the country was going through, or the country, the world, was going through that massive social upheaval and unrest all around George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and all of the horrible injustices that were going on, the wisdom of Solomon came up a lot. That's TV Laura Melissa Gobert again. And she's talking about an episode from season three called The Wisdom of Solomon, guest starring then-kid actor Todd Bridges, who would go on to star in the 80s sitcom Different Strokes. 
In the episode, Bridges plays a young black boy named Solomon who runs away from his family because he wants an education. I want to go to school like all the mother children. That's the white man's school, honey. You can't go there. Why? If we free, why can't I? He eventually comes across the Ingalls who are kind to him and give him food and shelter and take him to school. Laura, who has never met a black person before, wipes Solomon's face to see if the black will come off his skin. Melissa Gilbert acknowledges that this scene felt cringy even when she was filming it. I asked not to do it. I said to Michael, I, I can't do that. That's horrible. And he said, yeah, but we're trying to show people how wrong it is to be ignorant and how open Laura is to learning something new. And I said, okay, well, then I'll do it. But you're, I mean, I had to say you're a real Negro person and try and wipe the black off of his face. What you doing? You are a real one. As a fact, I've never seen a real Negro person before. It was absurd to me, but once it was explained that this is what we were doing and the lessons we were teaching, that was impactful to me because I realized that our show was more than just Laura's story. The truth Little House was trying to get at in this episode was not one many primetime TV shows would have explored. The climax arrives when Solomon stuns Charles Ingalls with a profound question. Would you rather be black and live to be 100? Or white and live to be 50? This clip routinely makes the rounds on Twitter and TikTok. I was hearing on Twitter from people like, Jamie Foxx and, and Viola Davis, who knew Little House on the Prairie was so woke. And I'm sitting at home going, I did, I did, I knew. Here's writer and children's literature professor Lizzie Skernick describing watching this episode as a child in the 80s. I'm actually picturing myself watching it in my parents' bedroom after school, like sitting on the floor in front of their bed, probably with my brother. You know, my mother is Black, my father is Jewish. It didn't make me mad. But then there's the idea of, like, this is always how Black people show up on shows. We're always on one show. <laughs> they just have to have a thing for white people to connect with. Because white people refuse to connect with Black people as human beings. White people were interested in Black people insofar as they were able to give Black people a chance to say racism was bad, thereby featuring themselves as people who thought racism was bad. But as we all know, not particularly interested in the actual story of any Black people. This is especially notable when you consider there is a character in this episode, Dr. Tane, who's based on a real-life Black doctor named Dr. Tan. Dr. Tan appears in the book Little House on the Prairie. In the TV show, Dr. Tane is jaded and angry because white townspeople won't let him practice medicine. This is a far cry from Dr. Tan's real story. Uh, in that episode, it's all like, life is hard. And then it's like the real Doc Tan was doing great. You know, the real Doc Tan was the only doctor on the prairie and a true doctor in that he saw everybody and everybody saw him. And he was a terrific businessman. So in that sense, it was kind of annoying. But then on the other hand, Todd Bridges is famous. Lizzie and I are the same age and grew up with Little House reruns after school. By the time we encountered The Wisdom of Solomon, its guest star, Todd Bridges, 
was very famous from different strokes. So, you know, you're feeling like, oh, this is Chad Bridges. This is cool. Today, clips from The Wisdom of Solomon can feel shockingly ahead of their time. But the truth is the episode was very much of its moment. The Wisdom of Solomon originally aired in 1977, just weeks after the final episode of the miniseries Roots. Roots was based on Alex Haley's best-selling novel about slavery, and its final episode remains the second-most-watched overall series finale in U.S. television history. So the decision to do The Wisdom of Solomon may have been partly a matter of Landon recognizing what audiences wanted and trying to benefit from the ratings juggernaut. Whenever I look at these shows as a grown-up, I always just see a group of people around a table trying to think of ideas. Like, I think you can, like, see the spitballing coming from a mile away. Does that mean these stories can't have a positive effect? Lizzie thinks oftentimes they actually underscore a larger problem. The same problem that's in the Little House books. The show then creates the reality that people think existed. If you talk about the frontier, people think the frontier was white. But I do think the dangerous propaganda being like, oh, well, you know, you're just telling an ancillary story when you talk about Black people on the prairie or talk about the Native Americans because people have absorbed this idea that white people are central. And it's like, hey, like, I'm not being an activist. I'm being accurate. White people are not central to American culture. Native American scholar Gwen Westerman also remembers watching Little House as a kid. I loved the, the TV show, but I never thought that much about it. Coming to it as an adult um, has been a much different experience. We were on a trip somewhere and watching TV in the hotel room when the episode of Little House on the Prairie came on, and it was in the winter, and a Dakota man helped save Pa from the blizzard. And once we got past the terrible makeup and the clothes that the man was wearing, they they made him look like the typical Hollywood stereotype of Indian. He never spoke a word. Um, he just helped Pa, and they helped him, and then he walked off into the snow. Similar to Lizzie saying she was excited to see Todd Bridges, this conversation feels complicated by the fact that even insulting descriptions on screen were sometimes better than not seeing yourself at all. So to see Native people on TV, even in the caricature, was during that period of validation that we existed. So those were representations, but they were not the the reality that I knew growing up in a very strong and vibrant intertribal community. So we always kind of had to balance that, but at least there was validation there that people knew that we existed. Despite Landon's desire to make Little House relevant, when it came to depictions of Native Americans, he was unable or unwilling to translate events right outside his door onto his fictional prairie. Another one, one that even as a kid I was aware of, are the women on the prairie. The girls were fine, but the grown women, not so much. 
We're reflecting the 1800s when women had zero rights and a reflection of the 1970s where women had maybe a half a point of rights. The issue of women's rights seems like it could be good TV copy, no? Especially since the second wave feminist movement was raging and Landon was surrounded by self-avowed feminists. Here's Lizzie again. Or show the limitations of um, their creator, you know? You might not learn a lot about the prairie from Little House on the Prairie, but you learn a lot about Michael Landon and the 70s and television and, you know, male ideals and feminine ideals. Sometimes more modern storylines came through, but those feminine ideals were ever-present. And we even touched on women's rights and chauvinism and the mistreatment of women at the same time while marginalizing women to do nothing but pour coffee sometimes for many episodes at a time. One of the most staunch feminists I know was Karen Grassley, who was one of the great coffee pourers of all time. I felt myself to be a polar opposite of Carolyn Ingalls. That's Karen Grassley, the actor who played Laura's beloved Ma. I wasn't married. I didn't have children. I was, you know, from the sexual revolution. I mean, the little woman had never been my goal. And so there were times when the choices offered to Carolyn in the script rankled. But Karen is quick to acknowledge that Michael knew what he was doing. He was directing the most crowd-pleasing version of events, creating the wholesome family center that would make the show a hit. And this is not at all a criticism. This is just an example of how Michael knew his vision and he knew what he wanted and, in fact, was well-connected to his audience. He knew what they wanted, too. And what every audience in all of history has wanted is romance. And there's very little of it in the Little House books. Even Lauren Almanzo's courting is chaste. But naturally, there's plenty of romance on Landon's prairie. Mr. Edwards goes according. Mary falls in love, gets jilted, falls in love again. But nothing compares to what happens to Laura the second she hits puberty. Like the second. From girl in braids to boy-obsessed teen. Well, obsessed with one boy who's actually not a boy at all. We don't mean that in the progressive way. Which brings us to the episode Sweet 16. So my name is Dean Butler, and I played Almanzo Wilder from 1979 to 1983 on the Little House television series. At the beginning of season six, Dean Butler was cast as Laura's love interest and future husband, Almanzo Wilder. At the time, Dean was 23, and Melissa Gilbert was 15. I mean, I can't even tell you what a girl I was. I mean, I was a gidget. 14, 15 years old, knock knee, buck tooth, still had braces on. I towered over her. You know, I'm six, one and a half. Melissa was, what, five, five, something like that. She always commented on the fact that, you know, that I drove my own car to the set, that I shaved. I hadn't been on a date. I hadn't kissed a boy. I was just so much bigger than she was. Well, I can tell you from the lens of today, you can't do that. You, there's no way they could shoot it. There's no way they would cast it that way. And there's certainly no way it would be handled the way it was handled. Sweet 16 is the second to last episode of season six. 
Laura has had a crush on Almanzo for the entire season, but her affection has not been returned, and she's given up hope, taking a teaching job out of town. Her hair has gone up into a bun, so we know she's a grown-up now. Almanzo sees the light of day, and at the end of this episode, they kiss. According to IMDb, it's one of the highest-rated episodes of the series. Melissa Gilbert was 15 when they filmed it. Now we have intimacy coordinators and we have all this dialogue around being comfortable and feeling safe, which is amazing. Nobody talked to me about it. It was just, it was. Nobody said, are you uncomfortable? Are you okay? Is this all right? I remember being told that the Almanzo episodes were coming. Fortunately, we had a little run up to the actual marriage and stuff. But by the time we got to the Sweet 16 episode and the first kiss and all of that, it was, you know, I knew Dean and I liked Dean and I got along with Dean, but I still felt like I was out of my element, to put it mildly. There certainly would be nothing like that today. That would never happen today. But again, Michael's numbers were huge. NBC was not going to screw around with this. You know, it was working. The audience was tuning in. They were watching. They were coming to see this. And they came to see this romance in enormous numbers. Three episodes later, at the beginning of season seven, Lauren Almanzo marry. I must tell you that even as a kid, this did not stand out to me as a problem. At all. Which I told Dean in our conversation. No, as a kid watching, I was just like, oh, this makes complete sense, and now her hair isn't in braids anymore. But I'm quite sure I thought 15 was ancient. And right. I was also devoted to the, I mean, devoted to the books, too. And in the books, there is a 10-year age gap between the two of them, and she does meet him at age 15 in the books. So I'm not sure. Does he get married till 18? Oh, and, <laughs> right. You know, and, and, but yeah, I also think, and, like, we have a different, our understanding of age and age differences has shifted dramatically even since the 80s in in good ways. But it's a different conversation than I just thought this was real life too. So just to be clear, there was no like, would this actress have had a problem? I was like, well, it's Lauren Almanzo. These contradictions within the Little House series were one week you'd see something that felt boundary breaking and the next week something that felt sort of like a strange cultural throwback in many ways mirrored the contradictions inherent to Michael Landon himself. On the one hand, he was a family man who ran his set as a tight ship so that his crew could go home on time. Charlotte Stewart, who played Miss Beadle, remembers this especially. Most of the television shows that we did in those days, they'd work you till 10, 11 o'clock at night. And you had to come back in at like six in the morning and they didn't care, they, they would pay for it. But Michael was a family man. And he, the guys, the, all the men and women that worked for him on the crew, they had families, like every other television show. But who cared? Michael made sure they got home for dinner at 7. On the other hand, he had a rather messy personal life at times. Certainly not one Charles Ingalls would have led on the prairie. This was a man who espoused family values and community values and was married three times and had children with three different women, and was deeply flawed and human. But who isn't? Doesn't mean he's a, a bad person. It just means he's a human person. Everyone we spoke with talks about Michael Landon's incredible work ethic and his respect for his cast and crew. 
Alison Arngren writes in her memoir that the child actors of Little House boast that there have been no arrests and no convictions. Michael was devoted to the show and protective over his creative vision, which is most visible in how he decided to end the show. So, Joe, guess how the series ends. Alien invasion, zombie apocalypse, an invasion of a clown mime army. (laughs) Um, Close, but no. They blow up Walnut Grove. No, they don't. Like, they blow up the town. Yeah. A tycoon comes in and buys all of the land and all of the buildings in Walnut Grove. And they can't get any of them back. So their only recourse is to blow up the entire town. As one does. As one does. I think I went back to this as a teenager to remember if I remembered this correctly. Because I watched this, I was old enough to watch this in prime time. And for years, I wondered if I'd imagined it. <laughs> they blow up the entire town. Yeah. And the thing is, they blew, they actually blew the set up in real life because no. Michael Landon did not want anyone else coming along and using his little house on the prairie set. So he blew it up and he wrote the episode around that. That's such a dude thing to do. It's like, mine, mine, mine. No one else. No one else is going to be here after I'm gone. <laughs> and then the crazy thing, too, is the last shot of the last episode is they don't blow up the little house. Like, they don't blow up the iconic little house. That's the empty little house is the last shot. And in real life, he also didn't blow up the little house. It burnt down in a fire, like a random fire years later. So, I mean, the blurring of fact and fiction in the little house world continues right to the very end of the television series. Michael Landon was a real special kind of trip, is what I'm, is what I'm getting from this episode. I, Michael Landon was, I mean, cosmically speaking, it sort of feels like, could there have been a more perfect person to continue the Little House legacy? Truly. He's sort know. of perfectly formed for it. Honestly, what do you think Laura would have thought of what became of her legacy on these TV shows? So, like, in doing this episode, the funny thing I kept coming back to is the similarities between Rose and Michael Landon. Like, two people who were amazing storytellers and, you know, could take these simple tales and then fictionalize them in a way that we can't get enough of and take these characters and turn them into sort of these like heroic male heroes. Rose, as we know, loved taking men and turning their biographies into these heroic stories. So I kind of feel like Rose would have loved Michael Landon. I I don't know what Laura would have thought because she was very... You know, she was of her time. She was very conservative right. and didn't like talking right. about sex. But I, I think but Michael Rose, Landon and Rose would have, would have gotten on great. Both Rose and Michael Landon saw these essential truths in Laura's story and tapped into them in such a deep way that it's so satisfying. We can't get enough of the simple tale 
(laughs) of Little House. (laughs) They tapped into Laura's story in such a way to create some completely bonkers content. (laughs) Completely bonkers. So look, Laura was clearly beloved. Her stories are clearly beloved. And what I'm taking away from this episode is that Michael Landon was very beloved. Even the people we talked to who talked about him being complicated or flawed, everybody loved him. Like, literally everybody loved him. People followed him around. He was beloved. Michael Landon remained a beloved figure for the rest of his career. And then, in 1991, at the age of 54, he called a press conference at his home to announce a terminal cancer diagnosis. But Landon faced the diagnosis with his usual charm and humor as he demonstrated in his final Tonight Show interview with Johnny Carson. You've got a pilot you made for this fall. That's right. Called uh, us. Called us. Uh, made it for CBS. I don't get better. It's their second mistake since buying baseball. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I was a little worried about this interview tonight. You've made me feel much better. <laughs> Whatever his complications, Michael Landon made everyone feel better. So it was even more shocking when he died just two months later. But as Landon predicted way back when he conceived of the show, decades later, Little House lives on. He said, you know, everyone's going to be watching these shows long after we're all gone. He said, long after I'm dead. It was like this prophetic thing. And everyone he said it to it, <laughs> yeah, right, oh man. And like, didn't believe him. We didn't get it. Michael got it. A half century later, the stars of the show continue to draw huge audiences in real life. People come to fan conventions, to events at the actual Laura Ingalls houses, to book signings. We get the people who come for autographs and sometimes they cry because it's so intense to meet the person that you've grown up watching. I know Melissa Gilbert, obviously it's Laura. She People just go into a coma. A lot of people don't think they're going to be emotional. Then they meet Ma and that voice and she sounds the same and she's so sweet. I've seen people really lose it over um, Charlotte Stewart, Miss Beadle. All the actors we spoke with seemed grateful to be part of the Little House legacy. To visit Walnut Grove is to relax and know that people are going to show up for each other. When I got Little House on the Prairie, people in Hollywood went, What? Little House on the what? Oh, how boring. Well, guess what? We're still on the air. It's as big a gift as anything I've ever received in my life. To be associated with those books, with that woman, with those stories, with that television show is the gift of a lifetime. Not a day goes by that I don't think about Little House on the Prairie or mention something to do with Little House on the Prairie or Laura or Rose or the Ingalls' relatives or something that has something to do with them. And they're so infused in my, in my being at this point. Sometimes it feels like Laura Ingalls Wilder has had nine lives. She's been reimagined so many times, for better and for worse. When Laura and Rose sat down to write the books, Laura wanted to preserve her family's legacy. She had no idea she was creating such a lasting brand. But that's exactly what she did. Laura not only inspired a TV show we're still watching, she launched the careers of many stars we still know about. She spawned additional book series, fashion brands, entire lifestyles, businesses that have made millions of dollars. 
And that's what we're going to talk about next week when we dig into the business of Laura. Wilder is written and hosted by me, Glynis McNichol. Our story editors are Joe Piazza and Emily Marinoff. Our senior producer is Emily Marinoff. Our producers are Mary Dew, Sheena Ozaki, and Jessica Kreinchich. Our associate producer is Lauren Phillip. Sound design and mixing by Amanda Rose Smith. Our theme and additional music was composed by Elise McCoy. We are executive produced by Joe Piazza, Nikki Tor, Ali Perry, and me. If you're enjoying Wilder, please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. It actually helps us out quite a lot. Extra special thanks to Dean Butler for connecting us to so many little house cast and crew members. Thank you to the Friendly family for helping us navigate the little house world. Thanks to NBC for allowing us to use Little House on the Prairie clips. Thanks to Michael Landon for letting an entire generation know it's all right to cry. Thank you, as always, to CDM Studios. We've listed extensive resources in our show notes on all the topics we've discussed in this episode. You can also find our contact info there if you want to write to us with your own thoughts and questions. Follow us on Instagram at wilder underscore podcast and on TikTok at wilder podcast, where you can see behind the scenes footage from all our travels. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe Ventilation System exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe Ventilation System. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com.